Good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here at Adventure. You can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, we're talking uh, for the last few weeks through a series called Transformation. I know that some of you have been following along in a journal that was created by Pastor Rick Warren. Uh, which has some daily devotions through this, but I'm pretty confident this morning that even if you know nothing about any of what we've been doing for the last few weeks, the topic that we're going to be talking about this morning will uh, be relatable and understandable by everyone that's here. But I want to start by asking you to think through a question. What is the most valuable thing that anyone has ever let you borrow? Think about that for a minute. What's the most valuable thing that anyone has ever let you borrow? I grew up in Napa, not far from here, uh, in a church there, and there was a family in our church that had a boat, and they had a son who was about my age, and every now and then I and some other guys would get invited to go out on the boat to Lake Berryessa, hang out for the day. And that probably doesn't sound that unusual to you. I was once a boat owner. We did that kinds of thing. But what you don't expect is for Mr. Anderson to stop you on a Sunday morning and say, hey, if you're not busy tomorrow, why don't you and some of the guys take the boat out to the lake as he hands you the keys to his brand new Jeep and his brand new Skeenatique? I could tell you some stories about boys and that boat at Lake Berryessa. I won't this morning. Most of them involve 18-year-old boys doing the kinds of things that only stupid 18-year-old boys do. But miraculously, somehow, we always returned in one piece and so did the boat. I went off to college, had a girlfriend whose dad was in business. He knew a guy in business near where I was going to school, and I got a job there working on Saturdays doing some assembly work for him in his shop, and so I would ridden my bike over one day, was working away, putting something together, and he said, hey, could you make a delivery for me? Now, I knew what kinds of things I was putting together and said, I'd be happy to, but I can't carry this stuff on my bike. I mean, it was heavy. He says, ah, no problem, as he reached in his pocket and tossed me the keys to his brand new BMW 320i. That story involves a black Ferrari 308 GTS, stoplights, and amazingly, I am still here to tell you about it. And actually got to drive the car more than once. About, for about eight years, I worked for a company that was based in Austin, Texas, and I would travel there regularly. And so I was constantly looking for someplace to stay other than just a typical you know, business hotel room and had friends and things along the way that would let me stay in their home. But I was working with a church planner. There's one of those, you know, know people who know people who know people stories. I was working with a church planner there who had met a guy who was in financial services who had a client... You know those pop-up ads, you know, when you're on the internet? They pop up and you don't want them and you try and make them go away? This guy invented those. The patent was hanging on the wall in his home office. Anyway, beautiful lake house in Austin. Hey, anytime you need a place to stay, house is available. And as I started thinking about this question, I realized that throughout my lifetime, I've had people let me borrow some pretty valuable stuff. But I also realized as I thought about it that most of the time my biggest concern when I was in possession of their stuff was what they did not want me to do with it, right? Don't wreck the boat, don't wreck the car, don't trash the house. I never really thought about what they would want me to do with the stuff that they had loaned me. Do me a favor. Get out your wallet. I promise I'm not going to ask to borrow anything in it. 
Get out your wallet. And some of you will be like me, and when you open it, there isn't going to be very much cash in there because you really don't use much cash. Some of you may live by cash, and so you'll have to kind of flip by the $100 bills to find you know, something small to get out. If you have no cash at all, then you have to at least be like me, and there's a wallet full of cards. And somewhere in your wallet, there's a debit card or a credit card that is the one that you use instead of cash. So get that one out. Put that in your hand. Okay, I'm, I'm, you know, get it out. Hold on to it. It's tangible. Now, here's my question for you as this is in your hand. Whose is it? Now, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Let's be honest, right? It came out of your wallet. It's mine, right? This is my money, my stuff. It came out of my wallet. And the person sitting next to me has their wallet. That's their stuff and their money. But this is mine. We live in a culture that that's how we define financial possessions, right? You know, we have laws that say this stuff is my stuff and your stuff is your stuff and I can't have what yours and you can't take what's mine. But have you ever thought about all the problems that belief actually causes? Think about it. Because we believe that this is mine, some of you have more than I have or I might have more than you have. And so we end up wanting what someone else has, right? I think I need what you have, or you think you need what I have. And so I try to get it, but because someone's trying to get what I have, then I end up kind of hoarding what I have so I can protect it, or vice versa. And so thinking that this is mine leads to a lot of need and a lot of greed. The other thing which is kind of interesting is that this is one of the biggest sources of stress in our lives. The American Psychological Association just did a survey and if when I said money and wallet, the first thing that actually happened to you was your heart weight ran up a little bit, your blood pressure went up, the adrenaline started going because just the thought of money created stress for you, you should just relax and realize you're like most people in America. Seven out of 10 people in America said they're stressed about money. It's just normal for people in our culture and society to be stressed about money. The worst part is because of all of that need and greed and stress, did you know that money and the belief that this money is ours, one of the biggest things that leads to broken relationships? The, in the vast majority of divorces, one of the primary reasons that is stated for getting divorced is money, financial stress. It, it breaks apart marriages. So with all of those things, have you ever thought about the fact that maybe we got it wrong? That maybe this idea that this is all mine is actually not the right way to think about it. And maybe there's a better way to think about it that would produce less problems and less stress for us and actually allow us to use money in a much better way. Go ahead and put your money away and get out your Bibles. I want to share with you a story that Jesus told. And I want to be really honest with you. My goal this morning is to transform the way you think about money in a rather short period of time here. I want to transform the, your attitudes and your actions in relationship to money. And I want to do that by teaching you what Jesus taught about money. And it's countercultural. It's the complete opposite of the way our culture thinks about money. This is from Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells one story here, Luke chapter 16, and to make this even more crazy, it's a story about a corrupt manager. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, 
what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. Well, I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat was the reply. And he told the man to take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. So first off, the transformation I want to make is not to turn all of you into dishonest employees who will go to work tomorrow and steal from your boss. That, that's not where we're going here, all right? But that is what the hero of Jesus' story did, right? He stole money from his master for his own benefit. Now, he didn't keep the money. He let other people keep the money, but he did that so that they'd take care of him. He was stealing. He was cheating. And Jesus makes this guy the hero of his story because he says the man is shrewd. That word in Jesus' day might be a word we would say as prudent or actually even wise, but it's a specific kind of wisdom. We today might call it street smart. It's the kind of person who kind of recognizes what the problem is, knows what action needs to be taken, and takes it quickly to make things happen. And Jesus is saying that's what this manager did with his master's money. He was prudent or wise, but he also says that's what most people fail to do with God's money. Did you notice that? Jesus puts down his own people at the end of his story. He says, hey, people of the world, they know how to deal with money better than people who follow me. So, instead of going to work on Monday and figuring out how to cheat our bosses, why don't we take a few minutes and try and figure out what is Jesus talking about? What should we understand about what Jesus is saying so that we could use our money shrewdly, prudently, wisely? What's in our wallets, what's in our bank accounts, and all of the other places that we give and that we invest and that we spend. Jesus in this story transforms money in three ways, and I want to talk about that, each of those specifically. The first and the most radical and most transforming of all, Jesus says it all belongs to God. Now, the whole universe belongs to God. If God is God, right, by definition, then the universe belongs to God, right? The sky and the ocean and the earth and the trees and the rocks, it all belongs to God. People belong to God. You belong to God. I belong to God. And if everything belongs to God, then money belongs to God. All the money, all the money in your bank account, my bank account, everyone's bank accounts, it all belongs to God. Go back to the beginning of Jesus' story. In chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. In the story, whose money is it? The rich man 
or the manager. The money belongs to who? The rich man, right? He's the boss. It's his money, and the manager is just taking care of the boss's money. If any of you work for a company that you ever touch money at all, you're in the same situation, right? Sometimes you manage the company's money. It's not yours. But in Jesus' stories, there is very often a character who represents God. Who in this story do you think would be the character who represents God? It's the rich man, right? And who is the character that represents people, that represents us? It's the manager. I'm a manager. You're a manager. We're all managers. God has put some things in your life under your management. Everything you have belongs to God. You wouldn't have any of it if it weren't for God, but it's yours to manage. Now, if that's not settling with you well, if you're thinking, no, wait a minute, this is my money, I just want you to consider this question. Can it be taken away from you? Now, if you work for a company, and maybe you have a computer or a car or some other things that belongs to the company you work for, ask yourself this question, could it be taken away from you? Right? The thing that belongs to the company. Of course it can, right? At any time they want, they can say, we're taking that back. Well, if you're a manager and everything belongs to God, then isn't it the same? Right? Can't God take back? Now, I'm not saying he will. Don't, I'm not trying to create worry or stress, but doesn't he have the ability to take back everything that is his anytime he wants? Be honest. There's people that have that power. It's not that strange to think that God has that ability. But, again, I don't say that to make you feel stressed or worried. It should actually have the opposite effect for you for a couple of reasons. Here's the first one. If money can be taken away anytime, then it's not a very good thing to put your trust or your security in, is it? Right? Who wants their security in something that could be gone like that? So instead of putting your trust or your security in money, why not put your trust or your security in God, in the one who provides everything that you have, the one who loves you, who cares for you, who takes care of you? That's a much better place to put your trust and your security than something that can so easily be taken away. But there's a second benefit. If it isn't yours then you really don't have to worry or be stressed about it. So let's say when you, when you leave here this morning, you head over toward Rayleigh Center, and maybe you park your car and go into Rayleigh's to buy some groceries. Maybe you decide to go have brunch over at Bella Brew or eat at one of all the other restaurants there, and you come out a few minutes later, and as you're walking back to the car, you notice that someone else, while trying to park in the shopping center, has hit your car, and there's this big gouge all the way down the side of the car. Now, if it's your car, it's a pretty bad day, isn't it? Like, man, someone wrecked my car. But if it's God's car, you know what? Hey, God, did you notice someone wrecked your car? It's a lot better way to live. The most transforming thing Jesus ever says about money is this. It's not yours. It all belongs to God. Now, getting that, believing that, will transform your attitudes and your actions with money more than anything else. But the second thing Jesus says about money that will transform your actions is we think money is for getting stuff we need, and if we're blessed, stuff we want. But Jesus says money isn't for getting stuff at all. Money is a test. Listen again 
Listen to this that Jesus says. So he's told this story, and at the very end, in Luke chapter 16, go to verse 10. Jesus is explaining the meaning of this story he's told. He says, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? How you handle a little money reveals how you will handle a lot of money. This is actually true. Researchers have studied what happens to people who win millions of dollars in the lottery. And it turns out that what happens to you has a lot to do with what your financial condition was before you won. Now, people who are in great financial shape before they win the lottery are usually in great financial shape after they win the lottery. But people who were a financial mess before they win the lottery, you'd think, man, all that money should solve their problems. It doesn't. It actually makes them worse. Most of them end up bankrupt within just a few years. Some of them end up in jail. Some of them have even gotten themselves killed by getting involved in financial schemes that resulted in their murder. How you deal with a little money reveals how you will deal with a lot of it. Money is a test. And the money God gives us tests us in some very specific ways. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, my experience, I think a lot of people don't fully understand what Jesus is saying there. There's kind of a common sense relationship between money and our hearts. For example, if you have kids and I ask you, well, why do you spend so much money on your kids? Most of you who are parents say, well, because I love them. I, I care about them. That's why we do that. Now, I might also ask you, why did you spend so much money on that car? And you say, well, because I love that car. So sometimes there's things that we love and we spend a lot of money on. But what we miss is that what Jesus is really saying is maybe the reason you love that car is because you spent so much of your money on it. Your heart follows where your money goes. Think of it this way. How many of you right now, just sitting here this morning, how many of you would say that your heart, that, that at a real deep heart level, you care about the well-being, the financial well-being of General Electric? No, not the fridge or stove that might be in your house, the company, General Electric. Would anybody say that? I didn't think so. But now I want you to imagine doing this. You go home today and you sell everything. You sell your house, you sell your cars, you sell, you know, everything but the clothes on your back. You, you gather up as much possible cash as you can by selling everything. You take that cash and you invest every penny of it in buying General Electric stock. Now I want to ask you the same question. Is your heart connected to the financial well-being of General Electric? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Right? Our heart follows our money. Money determines, how we use money determines what it is that we really care about. The more of God's money you use for God's purpose, the more you will love God. The more your heart will go there. So money is a test of your love. But money is also a test of your faith. There's a proverb that says, if you trust in your money, you will fall. But if you trust in God, you will flourish like a green tree. That doesn't really need any interpretation. That's, that kind of explains itself. But here's the question. How do you know? 
How do you know what you're trusting more, money or God? When you're willing to do something that makes no financial sense, but makes perfect faith sense. Let me give you an example. Some of you I may know that I have two jobs. I work here as Adventure, but I also have a job working with an organization called Stadia that helps start new churches all across the country in South America. Stadia was an organization that helped Adventure get started as a church about a dozen years ago. And I've been working this last year to start some churches in the Bay Area, specifically in San Francisco, because San Francisco is the least church city in the entire country. There are less churches and less people going to church in San Francisco than anywhere else in the United States. So it's a place that needs a lot of new churches. But it also turns out that San Francisco is the most expensive place or one of the most expensive places to live in the whole country. Did you know that a one-bedroom apartment in the city of San Francisco rents for $3,000 a month? You thought your mortgage was bad. (laughs) I was there Thursday had a meeting with a couple who are moving to San Francisco to start a new church. Young couple in their 30s, they have a couple of kids. They have quit their jobs in Ohio. They have given up the lease on their house on June 29th. They are packing up everything they own, putting it in a U-Haul truck, driving across the country with the goal of celebrating the 4th of July in San Francisco over the Golden Gate Bridge. But here's the deal. They don't have any place to live in San Francisco. They came out this week to find a place. I texted John this morning. I said, did you get a place yet? No, we haven't found one yet. And you can imagine what the rent's going to be for a family of four in San Francisco. But keep in mind, he's not coming to work for some technology company. He's not even coming to work for a church that's there that's going to pay his salary. He's coming to start a church that doesn't exist yet. Does that make financial sense? Let's just be honest. No, it doesn't, okay? There is no way in anybody's mind that that could possibly make financial sense. Does it make faith sense? Yeah, because they're convinced that this is what God wants them to do. They are willing to do something that only faith can explain. Now, I'm not suggesting that in order for you to do that, that you've got to sell everything and move halfway across the country to start a church. Most of you aren't going to do that. But the question is, when was the last time you did something with the money that God has given you that could only be explained by faith? Didn't make any financial sense, but it made faith sense. Money is a test of your faith. One more test. Money is a test of your trustworthiness. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. Again, it's pretty easy to understand. Imagine that you are Bill Gates. If you don't know, Bill Gates is the richest person in the world. Um, He can buy BMW, not he can buy a BMW. He has enough money that he could buy the entire BMW company if he wanted to. Okay, he has a lot of money. Did you know that Bill Gates and his wife Melinda have three kids? Most people like, don't pay it. They've done a good job of keeping their kids out of the media. Did you know that their oldest daughter just turned 18? Now, what would you think if I told you that Bill and Melinda Gates, as the people who have control of all of this money, had decided on their daughter's 18th birthday to give her one-third of their net worth, their assets, and said, here, happy birthday, 25 billion, not M-B, 25 billion dollars. Now, there's a few kids in here thinking, man, I'll take that for my 18th birthday. And there's a few parents in here thinking what? 
That's foolish. That's not just foolish. That's stupid foolish. No one in their right mind would give an 18-year-old $25 billion. Now, I actually have no idea what they've given their kids, what they plan to give their kids. I, I, I know nothing about that. Okay? But I wouldn't be surprised if I found out that maybe they are giving their daughter what? A little bit of money to manage, to take care of, so that someday she'll know how to manage more. Now, how rich is God? He could give you more than Bill Gates has, a lot more. But why would you expect him to do that? Jesus says if we want God's riches, we have to first show that we can be trusted with a little. And the more trustworthy you are with a few things or little things, then God will give you more. The more he will trust you with. Money is a test of our trustworthiness. One more way that Jesus transforms money. He says it doesn't go with you, but pay attention to this. It's rewards due. Go back to Luke 9. This is right as Jesus finishes telling his story. He says, here's the lesson. Here's why I told you this story. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Remember that corrupt manager? He was losing his job, so what did he do? He used his master's money to make sure that he would have a place to live after he was fired. Jesus says he was shrewd for recognizing his predicament and having a plan. What is our predicament? I'm not trying to be morbid, but there are a couple things that I know are true about everyone in this room. The first thing that I know is that at some point in time, everyone in this room is going to die. And the second thing I know is that when you do, you won't be able to take that money in your wallet with you. I know those things to be true. That is our predicament. But Jesus says, when you use God's money for God's purpose, you benefit others and store up for yourself eternal reward, rewards that last beyond this life. And that's the sermon in a sentence today. Using God's money for God's purpose is an investment that lasts forever. But let's be practical. How do you do that? First of all, you can start by giving it all away. Now, I'm not suggesting literally, but some of you are still wrestling with where I started. Whose is it? Is it mine? Is it God's? I would suggest if you're wrestling with that, that you go home and you make an inventory. Figure out how much money you have in all your bank accounts and 401k and whatever things you may have. You know, figure out, you know, make a list of all the stuff that, you know, your house, your cars, your clothes, all of the thing, all the money, all the things, all the stuff, and just make a big long inventory of everything that you have control of. And then at the bottom of that inventory, write something like this. I hereby give all the money and things I have back to God. By doing so, I hereby acknowledge that they all came from him and have been given to me by him to be used for his purpose. From this day forward, I will do my best to use God's money for God's purpose, believing 
that I am making an investment that lasts forever. And after you write that out or something like that, sign it. If you're married, you better both sign it. I'd suggest if you have kids that are old enough to understand what a dollar bill is, explain what's going on and have them sign it too. Decide as a family that it all belongs to God and give it back to him. And once you do that, once you give it all away, you'll find that it's much easier to realize you're being tested. Now, in a room with this many people, and I can pretty much guarantee that there are a few people here today who are being tested financially. You're either facing some kind of financial challenge or some kind of financial opportunity. And as soon as I say that, those of you that are facing that know exactly who you are, and you know exactly what the situation is, and you aren't sure what to do. You haven't figured out how to resolve the challenge. Here's how. Reframe it reframe the circumstance. Ask yourself these three simple questions. First of all is this. In my financial situation, how can I show God that I love him most? Secondly, in my financial situation, how can I show God that I trust him most? And then thirdly, in my financial situation... How can I show God that I can be trusted with his money? I guarantee if you answer those three questions honestly, when you are done, you will know what it is that you should do in the financial circumstance or situation, challenge or opportunity that you are facing. I am so convinced of that that I will back up my guarantee. If you are in that situation and you answer those three questions and you still aren't sure what to do, you just contact me. Call the church office. You can email me directly. My first letter, my name C, last name Whitney, at adventurenatomas.com and say, I can't figure out my financial challenge and I will meet with you and I will help you figure it out. But you should know one thing. When we get together, our conversation is going to start with what? Three questions. How can you show God that you love him most? How can you show God that you trust him most? How can you demonstrate to God that you can be trusted with his money? Finally, consistently give, invest, and spend with an eternal perspective. Understand that this is not about the amount that you have. Some of you have a little. Some of you have a lot. Some of you who think you have a lot don't have a lot at all. I, in the last couple of years, just by weird circumstances, have gotten to meet several people who are billionaires, not the M, the B. I can't even imagine what that's like to have control of over a billion dollars. It makes what I have seen like barely pocket change, okay? The amount doesn't matter, though. The question is, Why? Why do you make the financial decisions you make? Why do you do the things that you do with the money that God has given you control of? Are you using God's money for God's purpose? I would love for adventure to be known as a people who do things constantly, consistently that make no financial sense at all, but make perfect faith sense. Uh, I would love 
to be around here among you and to hear you talking about the things that God is doing with the money you have given away more than you talk about the things that you're going to do for yourself with the money that you have. I would love for the Natomas community to know adventure as a church and adventurers as a people who are more interested in figuring out what they can give away than what they can get. And I would love for adventurers to be known as people who hold on to money very loosely, but hold on to each other and to people very tightly. That will only happen because we become not just individuals, but a community of people who are consistently, willingly, and gladly using God's money for God's purpose. Will you pray with me? Lord, I am thankful for what you have given me, um, what you have given each of us. Lord, I know that as I talk about this, there are people here this morning thinking, but I don't have enough. Lord, I, I pray that you would help them to recognize that what they have comes from you and to recognize that you're the only one that can provide more and to put their trust in your ability to do that. Lord, I know that there are some of us who have a lot, and I would pray that we would be grateful um, and joyful for the things that we have. Lord, help us to see how we have been blessed by you and to become aware constantly of the opportunities that are before us every day to use your money for your purpose. We pray in your name. Amen.